What happens when two parent coaches, one a Christian and the other an agnostic Jew, sit down to talk about parenting? They take their listeners from surviving to thriving. I'm Dina Thayer. And I'm Kira Dorian. Welcome to Raising Adults, a podcast brought to you by Future Focused Parenting. Well, hi, everyone. Kira and Dina here at Raising Adults Podcast. Welcome back to the laundry room. If you're new, welcome to the laundry room. It's cozy in here. (laughs) We're warm. Um, We are so excited to have you with us today. We have such a cool episode. I'm still a little bit like taken aback by how awesome our guest is. We've just had the best guest. Can we just take a moment? Like we've just had wonderful, wonderful guests on the show. I feel very privileged to have gotten to speak with so many cool people. Um, So Dina, like, do you want to tell everybody how this happened? It's sort of just the most beautiful story. I'm like popping out of my chair because I'm so excited and I'm not going to wreck it. Like, I'll let you hear the amazing bio when we start the interview for just how prolific and experienced and wise this guest is and just the wealth of knowledge that that she brings to the table. But here's what's so fun about this. Everyone who's been listening for even 4.2 seconds knows that I'm a word nerd, right? I love words. I love spelling bees. And I participated in spelling bees as a child. And I now facilitate the spelling bee at my kid's school. And a colleague of mine, the admissions director, said, hey, I think you'd be interested in this book and referred me to this book called Beeline, What Spelling Bees Reveal About Generation Z's New Path to Success. And I read it and I loved it. It was fascinating, all about the culture of the National Spelling Bee and the professionalism and the pressure that comes with it. And I reached out to the author just on the off chance. I was like, hey, we have this parenting podcast. I think that your work around Generation Z and the research and what this emerging generation looks like and how we can learn to parent with that is fascinating. Would you be willing to come talk to us? And guess what? She said yes. (laughs) So that's who we get to talk to today. And it really is an amazing episode. I mean, she's it's just full of great stuff. You're going to enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, I think what, what one of the things that really struck me that we talked about is the fact that every generation is parenting a generation that's very different from theirs. Yes. And so how do we as parents not place our own generational expectations on our children's generation, which is completely different? And how do we then stay connected to them? when we don't really understand what they're dealing with. Um, And she really does a good job of helping unpack what's going on for this generation um, so that we can stay connected. I just want to encourage you, too. Some of you might be on the early end of Gen Z yourself and are parenting or getting ready to parent. And you might have kids that are Generation Alpha because apparently, as we learned, it starts over. (laughs) So... I mean, this is the things we've learned, okay? It's amazing. So I would encourage you to still listen because you might not have kids who are Gen Z, but you might be an early Gen Z and navigating what what about the characteristics of your generation might impact how you parent because we really get to talk about that. Our, our generation impacts how we parent and we're basically parenting into uncharted territory, which is challenging. So I think you'll really enjoy it. And I would just encourage you, even if your people are littler, to give it a listen. And if you don't know what Gen Z is, she's about to tell you. Yes. So let's get to the interview. So today we have with us Shalini Shankar, and she is a professor of anthropology and Asian American studies at Northwestern University. 
She's also a cultural and linguistic anthropologist whose ethnographic research focuses on youth, media, language use, race and ethnicity, and Asian diasporas. She's the author of several books, including the one I read, you guys, Beeline, What Spelling Bees Reveal About Generation Z's New Path to Success. She's also written Advertising Diversity, Ad Agencies, and the Creation of Asian American Consumers, and Desiland, Teen Culture, Class, and Success in Silicon Valley. Shankar is a 2017 Guggenheim Fellow, the recipient of grants from the National Science Foundation, and has appeared in numerous media, including NPR, BBC, MSNBC, CNN, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and the LA Times. <laughs> See, I told you guys. So amazing that we get to chat with her today. Shalini, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for that kind introduction. We are so excited to get to speak with you. So before we kind of dive into all of your areas of expertise, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your family and how you got into this work in the first place? Sure. Yeah. So um, I went pretty much straight into graduate school after undergraduate because I um, was interested in anthropology, though I was never certain that I would make a career out of it. And it just kind of one thing kind of developed into the next thing. And so when I started doing research on youth, I was really focused on immigration and language and issues that I think are central to um, various immigrant communities, but as well to young people and the kinds of things they care about. And in doing that project, it led to this work on advertising because kids were such avid media consumers. And I was really interested in the ways that people were trying to appeal to them as in particular Asian American consumers. Um, but the spelling bee research kind of came out of my own fascination with the spelling bee as an institution, uh, as a longtime viewer of the event on television, and because I had come to learn that there was a whole minor league South Asian spelling bee circuit that really fascinated me. So all of those interests kind of came together in the book that you read. Um, but Another kind of aspect of my life that really made me particularly interested in parenting that I talk about in the book is the fact that I'm a mom of two kids. I have a son who just turned 14 and a daughter who is almost 10. So a lot of the things I write about Gen Z are also kind of informed by what I've seen in their lives. That makes sense. I mean, you're right in the thick of it. And as you know, our audience is primarily parents almost exclusively, although we have some expectant parents, too, who are getting ready to launch into that journey. And that means many of them are raising Gen Zers. So one of the first things that I think could just be helpful, so we're all clear and on the same page, is maybe you could tell us a little bit about Gen Z, the years it encompasses, and then some of those unique characteristics that make Gen Z so different from previous generations. Just talk a little bit about that. Sure. So Generation Z is the generation that follows millennials who are also called Generation Y or the millennial generation. And so millennials uh, were born between 1981 and 1996. Generation Z is born um, 
1997 until most likely 2012 is the end date that I've started to see. So some of your expectant parents are actually going to have generation alpha kids is what they're mm-hmm. called. I think people were curious where they go from Z and I guess they're starting <laughs> from the beginning. Again, starting uh, back over, <laughs> starting over again for um, generations uh, A through W, I guess. Um, so I, one of the things that um, really distinguishes Gen Z from previous generations is that it is demographically the most racially and ethnically diverse generation uh, since the U.S. has begun to record uh, race and ethnicity through the census. So what you see is um, the most mixed race children and the most children of immigrants. Um, As well, these are thought to be the most digitally fluent children, um, you know, in terms of having uh, been raised in a world that is really Uh, saturated with various kinds of digital communication and screens and so on. And some of the other emergent trends that I think are more anecdotal than actually established through data are that there's a really strong social conscience and activist leaning in many Gen Z kids, um, and that they're also grappling with the with the scale of social issues that perhaps previous generations tried to grapple with, but were maybe not as aware of because they didn't have the kind of social media uh, information that Gen Z has. Wow, that's really interesting. And it, uh, my kids are Gen Zers, and uh, it, it, it's like you just described their school. Like all the kids, all the kids in their school and all the things you just said. I'm like, yep, that's exactly right. So I'm curious, what do you think are the pros and the cons of these distinct generational characteristics? Like, are there things about it that are really going to help this generation that we're already seeing really benefit them? And especially around the social issues that maybe are benefiting the world. And then what are the things that make that really challenging for this generation? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's important for us to remember that these are broad generalizations that certainly wouldn't apply to every member of Gen Z, right? Because we're really talking about a cohort of, I mean, it's going to peak out at 83 million is what demographers are saying, but right now it's in the high 70s. And that's so many people, it's almost irresponsible to make really broad generalizations. So really what we can do is identify some of the trends. And I think those of us who have kids can see this in our kids' schools or lives, even if we're not seeing them in our individual children. Like a lot of the things I talk about in the book that um, that are really distinctive are not traits that I see in my own children, but that my children are aware of that are going on. So some of those things are um, this idea of professionalism has started to trickle down much more into um, younger and younger uh, kids' lives. So you have kids who are you know, YouTubers or kind of starting small businesses or doing the kinds of entrepreneurial things that were once thought to be post-college activities or maybe during college are now happening with parental assistance, of course, in elementary and middle school. And then by high school, kids have such fully fleshed out 
resumes, some of them that, you know, they look like people who have been in the workforce for a decade, you know, so that level of, of heightened professionalism um, is something that is really distinctive. Of course, the downside of that is that not all kids have access to that. Not all kids have the kind of parental or familial situation where that's even possible. And so it really widens a chasm between kids who can perform at that level and have those advantages and kids who don't. Wow. Yeah, that I fascinating. It's so interesting. And that makes I mean, I have so many follow up questions just yeah. because that's <laughs> that's so wild to think about. And I know I was reading in the book there were even these these what we would still probably consider children, maybe tweens, if we're going to use that term, but who were running nonprofits and were the CEOs of their own companies and 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 even some of these past spelling bee participants now running their own spelling coaching businesses. And I'm curious how that might translate into pressure. I mean, it is it, did you? I I got to read some of this in the book, but I'm wondering even for the for the children, like you said, who maybe don't have access to that, do they feel is there this idea that I feel pressure to perform at this level? And what if I can't or what if there is an access issue? I'm I'm just curious about how pressure manifests with what you just described and this emerging and increasing professionalism. Yeah, the pressure is real, I think. And and I think the kids, even the kids who are doing it, feel it. Um, but especially for those for whom it's going well, they may not feel it as acutely as the kids who are looking on and kind of mm. wondering what they should be doing to keep up. And I think that um, some of this is coming out in the preliminary studies on anxiety and depression um, rates going up. Um, you know, uh, unfortunately, that also um, correlates with suicide rates going up. I think all of these are mental health issues that are going to require a much more, um, a much earlier approach. Um, and, and it's just the, the data is only starting to really come in about these things. But I think it also, um, you know, since your interest is parenting as well, I think that it places a tremendous amount of pressure on parents as well. And are parents doing enough? I think this is a question that I've had many times and I admit it in the book, like, am I doing enough for my own children? And if I'm having this question as someone who has a PhD and, you know, who's middle class, like how would anyone who doesn't have my resources um, and my social position even begin to approach that? Absolutely. Oh gosh, yeah, that's that is a conundrum. I see it at our school. We have a um, huge amount of um, socioeconomic diversity at our school, and it just it's mind-boggling and and heartbreaking at the same time to try and figure out how do we how do we serve these kids in this world that is moving at this pace when they don't necessarily even have parents that are English speaking. They can't help them with their English homework. They can't help them with their reading, you know, those kinds of things. And it's it's just incredibly tricky. Um, I'm curious. I was just talking with a friend of the, about this yesterday. And I know we don't necessarily have this data yet, but I'm just curious your thoughts. What do you think is going to happen when my kids are eight, for example, or your, your youngest? Are they going to go to college? 
you know, I'm saving up all this money for college, but there's this little piece in the back of my head that's like, are they even going to go? Or are they going to start their own businesses and launch into some other way of moving through the world? Do you have thoughts on that? It's such an interesting question because my first book where I did this research in Silicon Valley, that was a really different moment in the United States um, in terms of how difficult it was to get into college and so on. But, um, you know, it was much easier. But a lot of those um, those tech people didn't go to college or their college dropouts, right? Because they just wanted to cut to the chase and do what they um, what they already knew they wanted to be doing and that this, the educational institutions hadn't caught up with their level of innovation and their dream for what they wanted to do. Now it's such a different moment where I kind of wonder without the credential of college, what is actually possible for most kids. Of course, it's possible that you could be that YouTuber who's nine and makes 26 million a year. But with for the rest <laughs> of us, because that was just I just heard that yesterday, that he was oh. the highest earner on YouTube. He was the, the nine year old um, who's been doing these unboxing videos. Um, oh, uh, I've heard of since, that. <laughs> yeah, since he was two. I write about him in my book, too. Um, but what the rest of us, you know, I don't know how confident we feel that it won't be held against our children if they don't have a higher degree. You know, higher ed, I think, still has a lot of social capital. And I think that that won't diminish just because there are all of these interesting entrepreneurial opportunities. So fascinating. So I know you mentioned right at the top also your particular interest and expertise in the Asian American piece and that this generation is so culturally and ethnically diverse. And I'm curious your thoughts or what data you also have in terms of the research and what role you see culture and immigration playing in how Gen Z is shaping up, those emerging characteristics. Where is that intersection? How does that that piece play in. We have so many uh, immigrant families, you know, first generation and also all this cultural diversity. Do you see that as having a role in what Gen Z looks like and these things you're describing? Yeah, it absolutely does. And I think the extent to which that influence is um, shaping different uh, aspects of society is something we're just starting to get our heads around. So as you noted, I work with Asian American communities. This book in particular was with South Asian American communities, primarily uh, immigrants from India and their children. And one of the things that I was really interested in considering is how does that difference between, you know, new immigrants who come to the United States at and have Gen Z kids, what kind of impact are they having that might be very different than, say, when my parents immigrated to the United States in the early 1970s from India, and I am a Gen Xer, you know, um, you know, did their parenting styles really have the same impact? And I think because of the, the sheer numbers of immigrants now, as well as the overall rise in how competitive schooling and culture has become for kids, we're seeing a much more outsized impact of these newer immigrants, these post-1990 immigrants who came with very high professional skills in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. And so they've really prioritized 
um, a certain kind of educational attainment for their children, both in schools as well as extracurricularly. And that's how you see these Indian American kids continually winning the spelling bee because they've really prioritized this in a way that not only the average kind of white American family might not have, but even people like me who are second generation immigrants wouldn't have done. You know, my children are not in spelling bees and it's in part because I don't have that first generation immigrant parent mentality and this sense of, oh my God, everything here is so competitive. What can I do to ensure that my kids thrive? Because, you know, I've already been here a generation. Is there, do you feel like there's pushback from your generation? So, you know, the second generation um, to to not parent in the same way because you've been here, because you're, you know, you were brought up in this particular culture, you probably see it differently than your parents do? Yeah, I think there's a little bit of both happening. You know, I think that those of us who grew up in households where education was certainly emphasized continue to emphasize that with their children. And I think that's true across racial and ethnic groups um, who are of a certain class status. You know, usually when people, uh, when, you know, whether their parents worked so that they could be first generation college students or whether, you know, a family has, um, you know, been college educated for several generations, generally, that trend continues. But where you really see the break is in the extracurricular um, area. And like this idea of balance and childhood and childhood being a time of play versus being a time of intense educational attainment, the latter being a much more um, you know, Indian immigrant mindset. And I think this is where a lot of people who like me who grew up in the United States do feel somewhat conflicted because we grew up in a much simpler time where, um, you know, we were encouraged to play sports, we were encouraged to develop a range of interests, but we didn't have to become experts at anything as children, that expectation wasn't there. And so we didn't. And it was easier to get into college for Generation X. It just that's statistically proven. So I think this idea of, oh, my goodness, I'm watching what these people are doing and I'm not doing that. What will the fallout be, I think, um, is a more uh, resonant question than trying to push back against it, because it almost seems like I don't even know which direction to push in. It seems to be coming <laughs> from everywhere. Yeah, that makes that makes a ton of sense. So I'm curious because uh, we're big on the podcast about our listeners being able to kind of have some key takeaways. So like, what do we do with the information that we've got? So what would you suggest, assuming that, you know, our listeners are all future-focused parents, they're people who they, they are invested, they want to invest in their kids, they want to give them the best shot, but they also want to care for them mentally. Um, that's something that's really important to most of our listeners as well. Like, I don't want to overwork them to a point where then they're not mentally feeling well and healthy. So what do you think are the are the key takeaways? What do we do? Are there are there things that parents can really either keep in mind or be actively doing to give Gen Z the best possible shot at having, you know, just a really happy and healthy life? I think um, the most critical thing is to stay connected with your kids and watch them and and see what 
sparks their curiosity and the kinds of things that they gravitate toward um, and really cultivate those things, but also not like don't be afraid to continually introduce them to things that they may not immediately love. Of course, you're, you, don't, you don't want to force them into numerous things that end up being heartache for everyone. But, um, you know, I think exposing them to the extent that your resources allow for it, to as many things as possible, and not worrying about the outcome um, is, is one method that could be quite effective, you know, like really give them a chance to figure out where they can shine um, and not impose your own um, expectations on what shining looks like. You know, they might derive a kind of enjoyment or pleasure from something that doesn't conform with standard measures of achievement. And that's fine as well. That's such an important thing to remember. I think that's I was actually going to ask you about that, but you just answered mm-hmm. it so beautifully. Is that, that I was going to ask about, you know, is there a ditch we can watch out for that we, we can fall into? But I think that's exactly it, right? We can inadvertently become the source of the pressure if we're not careful or try to put a square peg in a round hole and craft our child into something they really aren't wired to do or be. And it's something to be so careful of. So thank you for that, because that that takes it to from the theoretical right down to the practical of Okay, here's how to how to do your best to navigate that because this is an ever changing world and it I think it's hard to stay on top of as a parent actually can be really tricky. Oh, and I just wanted to add that I think one of the trickiest things as a parent for of any generation throughout time is not um is finding a way to have your own experiences of childhood not overshadow the reality that your children are experiencing. Um, because it's so it's so common for us to think, well, I did X and so you know it shouldn't be a big deal for my kid to do this, or I'm gonna make sure my kid does this um, because I found it really fun or I found it really um fulfilling. And I think, you know, to just simplify it to its barest bones, the times have changed and it takes a lot of kind of work for us as parents to see what is available to our kids now and understand why they might want to do certain things that don't make any sense to us um, because the options have become so different. Well, and that's going to build the connection, right? I mean, we see this generation to generation. Every new generation thinks that the generation before just doesn't understand them, which is true because it is each generation's just so different. But I love what you're saying that like if we are observing and if we're kind of leaning into I I did it differently, but I'm curious what you're going to do, that not only are we supporting them, but we're also building that relationship with them that's going to mean that we're a safe place for them to go to and 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 that we move forward with them at least feeling like they might not understand me, but they're always trying to and how much better that is. Yeah. And what a difference it makes. I mean, it makes such a difference when your child says you don't get it and you try to rationalize or defend versus them saying you don't get it and us saying you're right. I don't. So let me in, help me learn, and to truly, like you said, be observers of their world and recognize that it is different. I I think that's really challenging, but so important to continue to work toward. It is. And it's really hard. And I think and like acknowledging how hard that is, is sometimes a relief because I mean, a lot of it is never going to make sense because it just goes against our entire socialization of how we grew up. But 
um, just remaining open to the possibility, I think, is, is probably doing your kids a huge service. Yeah, I love that. Well, I would love for you to share with our listeners how they can find you, find your work, connect with you, maybe on social media. Tell us all the places that you are <laughs> so they can find you. So the book we've been discussing is Beeline, What Spelling Bees Reveal About Generation Z's New Path to Success. It's published by Basic Books, and you could get it at most independent bookstores, as well as, of course, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and so on. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Shalini underscore Shunker. I'm on Instagram at Shalini Shunker, and my website is shalinishunker.net. And you can feel free to message me or send me an email um, at shunker at northwestern.edu. But um, if you Google me, it's not hard to find me. So I would love to hear from you. And if you Perfect. do read the book, I would love for you to please review it on Goodreads and on Amazon. It would be so amazing if you could do that. We totally get that because we, we know how important reviews are for all the things, right? We ask for them all the time on the podcast. So critical. Oh, Shalini, thank you again so much. It was just fascinating. And even as someone who myself, I've already read Beeline, I feel like I got even more today. I got to hear it unpacked a little more, if that makes sense. So that was really great. Oh, and thank you so much for your questions and your engagement. And I'm just happy that someone handed you my book. I mean, that's so exciting to know Me that too. it's circulating in those ways. I've, as you noted, been in academia forever. So it's hard mm -hmm. to know what happens in the outside world with the things you write. And this book is especially intended for a broader audience. So it's so thrilling that it's actually reaching a broader audience. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, I'm super grateful to the person who told me about it. I actually facilitate the spelling bee at the school that my children attend. And this was our 10th year. And so the admissions director said, I think you'd like this book because she knows I'm like a word nerd and I love the spelling bee. I'm the one who fought to bring a spelling bee to our school. Um and so, you know, there's a lot of schools that don't offer it. And we're a classical school. And so we already have a speech meet. And so they were really reluctant. They're like, when well, we already do the speech meet. But I stayed on them. And finally, like, I think the third year we were at the school, I wore them down. And <laughs> ever since we've had a spelling bee. So I think that's fantastic. And, you know, just to that point, I think um, one of the really fascinating things I've heard since I've started talking to people about the book is that people used to have the spelling bee at their school and got rid of it because it was too competitive and that yep. it was a response to trying to decrease the amount of pressure that their kids feel. And one tangible way was to get rid of this contest. And I found that to be absolutely fascinating as if just removing this one thing was going to make a big difference in the overall culture. Right. Um, totally. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's, it, it seems like not even quite a, what you'd call a Band-Aid solution. But I think just that um, that feeling of trying so hard to control your children's environment in whatever ways are possible is really telling of the kind of parental anxiety that underpins many of our lives today. So true. And even the question Kira asked that led you to talk about kind of this battle between the competitive piece versus 
childhood should be this time of play and relaxation. I think you see that there too. Like a spelling bee has a winner, although recently, you know, you could have eight winners, but, um, but there, there's this sense of it's not everyone gets a trophy. And I think there's also been a little bit of that cultural shift of, of, you know, can we reward winning and be able to be a positive and gracious loser? And how does that teach us to be a person versus like you you just get a prize just for doing it? And so it, I, I do think it's really interesting. But for me, I really fought for it, even just for the character piece. I think there's an element of poise that comes. And I mean, you described that so beautifully in the book, how great these kids are on camera and how articulate they are. And an element of poise and plus oral spelling is just a different skill than written spelling. It truly is. And so I think there's so much worthwhile about it, Uh, even though I do love words and etymology and all that. I think it goes beyond that. And I think it can be really positive. But you're right. There's there's definitely schools who are like, no, thank you. We don't want any of that competitive action. So not in that way. Right. And look at what's happening. It's just, um, you know, capitalism is stepping in and making all kinds of other contests for kids to be competitive, you know. Um, And so it's not like it's going away. It's just getting outsourced. Shalini, thank you so, so much for being with us today. It has been an absolute pleasure for us. And I just know that our listeners are going to get so much out of this episode. It's been wonderful. Thank you again for inviting me. Well, I'm glad you sent that email because she's fantastic. Yeah, I'm glad I did, too. And I'm so glad she responded so graciously and shared with us today because there's a lot to learn. And I think as parents, we're we're always going a little bit into the unknown. But what what Shalini did is remove a little bit of this shroud of mystery and things that are known can be less scary. And so I think learning about Gen Z and the characteristics and what it's looking like helps us as parents then navigate that a little bit better. So I'm really grateful for that, that help to walk alongside. You know what else I loved about the interview? What's that? When she talked about how reviews are so helpful and important. I love that. She like, I didn't even have to crowbar. She no. just did that for no. me. Thank you, Shalini. So Way to pave the way. You know how reviewing Shalini's book is helpful to Shalini? Well, guess what, guys? Reviewing our podcast, super helpful to us. <laughs> so if you haven't reviewed the show, please do. And we are going to post it on social media. We're going to show the world your review because we are so proud when we get those. And if you haven't subscribed to the show, go ahead and click subscribe. Join us. Become a subscriber. We're so grateful that you're here. Thank you for listening today um, and just getting to absorb all of her just incredible knowledge. And we look forward to bringing you another episode next week. Have a great week, FFPs. Raising Adults is produced by Kira Dorian and Dina Thayer and recorded in my laundry room. Music by Seattle band Hannah Lee. Thanks for listening.